After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencreae, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The question that I think is before us in this text is what does a divine perspective look like? And I want to think about that a little bit with you as we look at this text. I think there are four things that this text teaches us. If you look behind me, uh, the, crowd, the cross is shrouded. Some of you may be used to that, um, depending on what tradition of Christianity you've grown up in. But the idea of a cross being shrouded between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, um, when it will be unshrouded when we gather here, is a season of perspective. It's a season in which 
um, we are supposed to be more aware of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior, of the reality of our neediness. Now, some who might be more curmudgeonly, uh, maybe like myself, would say that should happen every Sunday. In fact, Luther wrote on the chapel at Wittenberg in the 16th century, the life of the Christian should always and constantly be a life of repentance and faith. The number one article of those theses that he nailed there. That being said, it's a good reminder, isn't it? And especially today, as we ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to have a divine perspective? For us to have this at all, we're dependent on the Spirit. Again, we have the opportunity to pray. Will you come and pray with me? Father, we just sang how deep your love is for us. Father, we said, why should I gain from Jesus' reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Father, we understand, at least in part, that the gospel is about an event that took place. That Jesus, you really did live your perfect life and die our death. You paid the price for our sins so that we would be set free. Lord Jesus, some with us today are not sure that that is real. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and convince them of your deep love. Father, for others of us, we believe it. But we find ourselves living life according to at least another perspective and maybe multiple perspectives. Father, we come to you today and we ask you uh, to take your time with our hearts and to work your truth in us. We recognize that what is required of us, even as Jesus proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount that we be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, that you're serious about the law. But Father, we recognize really at the core of our hearts that there's still a lot of ingratitude. We find ourselves complaining a lot. The perspectives which we naturally gravitate toward have us at the center and you in whatever position we need you to be so that our lives work. And Lord Jesus, we ask, would you allow us along with the Apostle Paul in this section, to have divine perspective on what you're doing. Father, I ask that you would do an amazing work in communicating with the hearts of the women and the men who are here today in ways that I I just simply can't do, Father. We together need to see Christ. And seeing him we need to be changed. We need to be different women and men than when we came in, and we need you for that. 
But we praise you, Holy Spirit, that your job is to remind us of everything that Jesus is, everything that he has done, everything that he has accomplished, everything that he has said. And we praise you that you're going to hold Jesus up before us. We ask that you would do that now. We pray for clarity of thought. Father, you know that as Dan prayed earlier, we're distracted. We're distracted with things that we're afraid of. Father, we pray for the people around the world who are struggling today with this coronavirus. Father, we pray for wisdom and we pray for a a global response. Father, we're fearful of the things that make us feel out of control and we're filled with pride of the things that we have that make us feel like we're better than others, the things that we can do, the things that we can accomplish. And Father, we're equally as distracted about those things as we are about the things that cause us anxiety. And so for a minute, I pray, Father, would you allow us to focus on Jesus? Would you give us uh, this divine perspective? We thank you and we praise you beforehand, even as Dan said earlier, we thank you beforehand for what we know that you're going to do. So it's with great expectation that we come before you. Father, thanks for this time. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So somewhere in this order of worship, let me see if I can find it for you. There's an outline that you can follow if you want to. It's on the uh, next to last page, page 14. And I want you to think with me just for a minute about what a divine perspective looks like. What does it look like to look at life with a divine perspective, a perspective that according to Acts, Jesus is at work. Remember, we've titled this for ourselves, the Acts of Jesus Christ through the power of his, by the power of his Holy Spirit through the apostles, right? This perspective that Acts is a book of actions by Jesus Christ into the world. And what does it look like for us uh, to have a divine perspective Well, I want to highlight these four areas for you that we look for and see in in this divine perspective that there are divine appointments. The second thing is that there are divine commands. The third is divine intervention. And then the last is divine dependence. Okay, that's what the outline says for you. And again, the question is, what does it look like for us to have a divine perspective? We are finishing this second journey of Paul. It starts in the 16th chapter. And I, rem- I want to know, do you remember how it started? Any, any idea as you rack your brains? Do you remember how this journey started of Paul's? Do you remember that it was a fight? A fight between Paul and Barnabas about who would go. And the fight was so significant that they actually split ways, going in two different ways. And throughout this journey we see Paul constantly being shaped by God's direction in his life. Whether it's where he can go or or where he can't go, whether it's he goes over to Macedonia or doesn't, we see him travel over to Macedonia and we end up seeing him in Philippi, right? According to the vision that God had given him to go over there and help And then we see him in jail in Philippi. He goes on from there to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens. And now he goes from Athens in Greece, just 100 miles away or so, to Corinth in Greece. And that's where we pick this up 
But before this ends, he gets back on a boat, goes to Sencrae, where he cuts his hair, goes across the sea to Ephesus, where he drops off Priscilla and Aquila, and then he returns to Syria. He goes to Caesarea, which is south of Jerusalem, goes and visits the church in Jerusalem, and then back to Antioch. And this journey is over. And the question is, what has Paul experienced? What has it been like for him? I'm convinced that this journey is about divine perspective, and I want to show you how it begins for Paul. The first is how God provides for him divine appointments. This is in verses 1 through 4. So look at it with me. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Now remember, Paul is going to new cities. Paul doesn't know people in these cities. We learned in Athens that he was by himself, and now he's going from Athens where he was at the Areopagus and where he was arguing with Stoics and Epicureans about what the gospel really meant, about the way you view reality, and now he's in Corinth. I don't know how to describe Corinth to you exactly. It is a, 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 a city that is on both um, the trade routes across land, but also the trade routes across the sea. There was this really fascinating geographical reality of Corinth that they had this pavement, they called it, that went for some six or eight kilometers that they would put boats up on this pavement and tow it across the land from one sea to the other, and it would save sailors hundreds and hundreds of miles of sailing. And so the traffic through Corinth was phenomenal. The gods of Corinth were Poseidon and Aphrodite. The, the picture is if you could take you know, Las Vegas and put it on the coast somewhere, put it on the Panama Canal and, and make it incredibly productive, that's Corinth. Larger than Athens, important, but chaotic. Known, as the word Corinthian meant, known for its immorality, known for its raucous nature. And this is where Paul finds himself by himself. But the first thing that Paul experiences here is divine appointments. And listen to how it happens. It says in verse 2 that he found a Jew named Aquila. And he, Aquila is with his wife Priscilla. Now this idea that Paul finds him could simply be just that. It's, it's the way that the, the language pulls out. Like if you walk down the street and you find a dollar bill on the street. But more often than not in Scripture... When this word that he has found is used, it actually points more predominantly in reference to surprising and mysterious discoveries, occurrences in history that point to the kingdom of God. And so Luke is saying that he went there and without knowing anybody, he found Priscilla and Aquila. The interesting thing is that Priscilla and Aquila are there in Corinth because they've been kicked out of Rome by Claudius, the emperor. There was a fight in Rome, and, and in fact, there is extra-biblical literature that seems to point to the idea by Suetonius that this argument that happened in Rome was between Jews and Christians, a fight over who Christ was. And so Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And so Priscilla and Aquila are cast out of Rome. They're not from Corinth. They're from Pontus, which is another few hundred miles further away. But in Corinth is where Paul finds them. 
Now, uniquely so, not only are they there, but they also are of the same trade that he is. It says that he went and found them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, for they were tent makers by trade. They made tents. They worked with the skins of animals. They used leather to make things. Some of you may know this language if you've heard about pastors who do one bit of work during the week and then they preach on the weekends called tent making, right? That's where this comes from. But here we see this great discovery that Paul, who thought he was going to Corinth, finds Priscilla and Aquila. And not only does he see them, that they're already believers. We don't ever see them come to faith. Luke would have us believe that they're already believers. But not only that, they actually are of the same trade as he is. You go, what's the possibility? What a coincidence. This is phenomenal, right? You might end up saying, as we often say to each other, when we hear of things happening in our lives where we believe God to be at work, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And you can imagine the Apostle Paul is doing that right here. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That what Luke is pointing out to us is that this is a phenomenal divine appointment for Paul. And one of the things that Paul is learning and continuing to learn, and we're going to see it in this next section when we see this divine command that he's given in his vision is that we ought to expect and look for these divine appointments in our lives. So often we function much more like Stoics, much more according to reason. It just happened chance that this is this way. But I want you to notice that Luke sets up Paul meeting Priscilla and Aquila whom he later will call fellow workers as a divine appointment gifted to him by Jesus. What does having a divine perspective look like? It's to believe that there are divine appointments in our lives. You know, one of the ones that comes to me just off the top of my head is meeting Nathan. I was speaking at an RUF conference and somebody said, you know, you need to meet that guy playing guitar. And I was like, all right, I'll go meet him. And, and I go and meet him, and we sit and we eat a meal together. And the next thing you know, we're talking and praying and wondering, would the Lord be calling him here? And suddenly, this young man who I meet accidentally? No. By divine appointment, perspective of, of God working in my life becomes central to our lives together, right? Isn't that true? And this first thing that we see about divine perspectives is to expect and to look for those divine appointments in our lives. And you can find them and you can consider them when you go, what are the chances that this would happen? Apart from God's work, and we're reminded that nothing is too small for God's work. The second thing that I think that we see in this passage is this idea of divine commands, that that God actually gives commands. And I want you to see this because this is unfolding for us in this next section of this story. We're told that Silas and Timothy finally come from Macedonia and they meet Paul in Corinth. 
um, as Paul writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians back to the Thessalonians from Corinth. Remember, he's there for a year and a half. It's at that point that we begin to understand that Paul, or that Silas rather, and Timothy probably brought Paul money so that Paul could, instead of tent making, he could focus full time on proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ in the synagogues and on the streets on a regular basis. And we pick it up in verse 6, that as Paul is doing this, it says, and when they opposed and reviled him, we hear something that we haven't heard before. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Well, we've heard that before, right? We've heard him say in the different cities that he's gone to, after the synagogues have kicked him out, he said, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. But he does something unique here that takes just a minute to think about. He shakes out his garments, not something that we would do. But if you're a student of the Old Testament, and if you have studied the, the prophet Nehemiah, you would remember a time when Nehemiah shook out his garment as testimony against the people whom he was speaking to, and he said, as I shake out my garment, if you break your promise before the Lord, may he shake you out of his house and out of his work. So this is a sign of judgment, right? And then he combines that and he says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. And again, you'd have to go digging through the Old Testament. You can look at the references below to see that in Ezekiel, Ezekiel says that I have gone and I'm a watchman and I proclaim to the people what you have said. And there we read, if you, if you are a watchman and you're to proclaim and you don't proclaim it, then you're not innocent. Their blood is on your head. But if you go and you proclaim the truth to them, you are warned. And people turn away and say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Then their blood is on their own head. They're innocent, Right? And it even gets a little bit more incredible when you read the other place where this is quoted is actually on the lips of David when one of the servants runs to him who actually helped Saul commit suicide after he had been wounded in battle. And he said, I killed Saul. And David said to him, then you will die because your blood is on your own head. You killed the Lord's anointed. And you go, is that really how important Paul felt like this argument was. And it is because when it says that they opposed him and they reviled him, they blasphemed against him and certainly against Christ whom he said, against Jesus whom he said was the Christ. <laughs> the anointed of the Lord, right? It's, just, it's amazing. And it says that from then on, he would go to the Gentiles. He left there. He went to the house that was right next door to the synagogue, a worshiper of God. And then even one of the rulers of the synagogue came to faith. You can see in this the tension rising all around Paul. The tension just builds and it gets stronger and stronger. And then we read in verse 9 that the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. And this is the divine command. Do not be afraid. If we were to read that as literally as it possible, it actually says stop being afraid afraid. Stop being afraid. Paul was afraid. The tension had become too much. And Jesus said to Paul, stop being afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And it says that Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. 
Paul had proclaimed these acts of judgment against the Jews who rejected him in the synagogue, and the tension only rose as he saw more Corinthians coming to faith. And in this, Paul's fear rose. What do you know about fear in your own life? And what does this teach us about a divine perspective in the midst of fear? But to receive the divine command from the Father, from from Jesus, as Paul did, stop being afraid. I will be with you. Now, the other thing that Luke does is he takes these words, and, and they are exact words from Isaiah 53. It's just incredible. Where there, in Isaiah 53, the Lord speaks to his servant and he says, Do not fear, for I am with you, and I will gather my people in from the east and the west and the north and the south. It's almost exactly what Jesus is saying here. There are many people in this city along the north and the south roads and the east and the west who are mine. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Obey me. And don't be afraid. You see, there are things that you might ought to be afraid of. Dave and Betsy and I have been talking a lot about the coronavirus, and I'm no doctor, as you well know. Tried that, failed. We'll get to that another time if you want to hear it again. But it's really interesting where you go, should we be afraid or should we take precaution? Is there prudence in taking precaution? You go, there's absolutely prudence in taking precaution. If I told you, hey, you shouldn't be afraid of the coronavirus, you would go, Bradley, you know nothing about viruses. You know nothing about what you're talking about. I'm not going to listen to you. And rightly so. You should not listen to me. If, If Dave and Betsy say, don't be afraid, then maybe you go, okay, yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe we don't really need to be that afraid of this. Um... The weight on which we put people's statements to us not to be afraid is connected to our belief that they have the ability to control what they're saying, right? And here we see the Apostle Paul hearing from Jesus, stop being afraid. And he says, I'm going to be with you. And a divine perspective is believing that is believing that in our obedience, when we are filled with fear, we ought to hear, as Paul does, stop being afraid. Look, if you're not obedient, if, if, if you're being disobedient in every way in your life, I, I'm here to tell you, you should be afraid. God takes that seriously. But when we are seeking to obey him, And yet fear crouches at the door. We ought to hear this divine command in a divine perspective. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Joshua heard it from the Lord. Jeremiah heard it from the Lord. I am with you. The second thing, besides these divine appointments, are divine commands that we remember when we think about a divine perspective. I want you to see the third one. Jesus says to Paul in this one in verse 12, no one will attack you to harm you. And then in the very next sentence, in verse verse 12, he actually says, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. And he's like, what is going on? And I want you to see here, in divine perspective of life, 
God's divine intervention. His divine intervention here. So here in verses 12 through 17, you see God's divine intervention in the least likely of means. The very Roman law, right? That's where God is going to intervene and rescue Paul. Paul, who has been brought before the Roman law, and remember, he's brought before the Jews who are saying, this is the guy that's upsetting everything. Now, remember, why did Aquila and Priscilla end up with Paul in Corinth? Because there was this argument happening in Rome between Christians and Jews, and it was such a controversy that the emperor kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And suddenly the Jews have said, look, this is the guy that's doing it. And it would lead you to believe that Gallio would say, off with his head, done with him, we're finished. We're going to kill this guy. Gallio was appointed the proconsul, the, the governor of Achaia. You want to know who his brother was? His brother was the Roman philosopher Seneca. You may have heard of him. Seneca would end up tutoring Nero, who would replace Claudius as the emperor of Rome. Gallio was no unimportant individual. And they brought him to the tribunal, which is the place where cases were tried. It's the supreme court of that region where precedent is set. And the Jewish leaders were saying, he's the one breaking the law. And they were hoping that Gallio would crush him and would just crush Paul. It is Rome averted if Gallio does this. The chaos that happened in Rome that Claudius had to respond to wouldn't happen if Gallio would crush this. Isn't it interesting that it says in verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Paul has not spoken yet. Paul has been silent. That Gallio speaks up and he says this, if this were a matter of wrongdoing, a vicious crime, of which you're right. I'm the governor of this place and I have the right to judge you. I would judge you. But since it has something to do with, with the names and, 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 and with the words of your religion and your law, I don't have anything to do with it. I, I'm not interested in judging it. He says, oh, Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. They're shocked, as is Paul. And most likely, so are Priscilla and Aquila who are standing next to Paul. Paul says later in Romans 16 that Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks for him. It was probably here. And they knew what happened when Rome caught wind of Christians and Jews having problems. But instead of this happening at this tribunal, instead of Gallio crushing Paul, God intervenes and uses the least likely individual that you would expect to save Paul. Not only this, but some argue that in saving Paul sets the precedent that Christianity exists underneath Judaism and is protected as a religion in the empire so that Paul can go on and continue to spread the gospel. Paul says in Romans that not only did Priscilla and Aquila 
risked their necks for him, and he was thankful, but so is every Gentile church that exists because of their standing next to him there. It's pretty incredible. What we see is a precedent was set in the least likely way we would have expected it to be. Our verse for this month comes from Exodus 14. In Exodus 14, the people of Egypt, or the people of Israel see the Egyptians approaching them, and they look at God and they go, you brought us out here into the desert to kill us. What were you thinking? And in Exodus 14, 13, Moses speaks and he goes, don't be afraid. The Lord has brought you here to show his power, and he will redeem you, and you'll never see these Egyptians again. All you have to do is be quiet. Isn't that amazing? And the Lord will redeem you. That to have a divine perspective is also to believe that God can intervene and use whomever and whatever he wants. Do you believe that? You see, I think we need to hear this because we struggle to believe this. We struggle to believe that God uses the least likely means of his church advancing, surprising us at every turn. But that's part and parcel with having this divine perspective. The last thing that I want you to see is divine dependence. The last bit of what this section is about as Paul finishes this missionary journey on which he thought he knew what he wanted to do from the very beginning, this argument with, with, uh, with Barnabas. And he ends up this missionary journey in a pretty amazing way. It says that after uh, Gallio made this call, you know, said, I refuse to judge on this matter, the Jews knew how important it was, and they actually turned and beat Sosthenes. Now, it could be that the Greeks beat Sosthenes. You're not sure, we're not sure by the reading of the text, but it probably, to me, makes more sense that the Jews beat the ruler of the synagogue because he was probably the one arguing the case that Paul should be punished. And they probably said, this is such a big deal. You did such a poor job. We're going to beat you. It's really fascinating because in another one of Paul's letters, he says that there's a man with him named Sosthenes. More likely than not, this guy who converts and comes with him. But it says that after they were driven from the tribunal, that Paul stayed for many days longer, and then he left Corinth. He went with Corinth and set sail for Syria. Remember, Syria is the region in which uh, Israel exists, according to the map of the first century, where he was going to go back and visit the church in Jerusalem and eventually go north back up to Antioch, okay? And he goes and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. That verse is one of my favorites, this idea of divine dependence, that Priscilla and Aquila go with him. There is nothing like experiencing friendship, right? One thing that's greater than friendship is partnership in something. When Paul goes to say that Priscilla and Aquila, please greet them for me, because Priscilla and Aquila go with Paul, they go from here to Ephesus, and from Ephesus it's most likely that they go all the way back to Rome. Um, Because when he writes the letter to the Romans, he says, greet these guys for me. They're dear to me. 
They risked their necks for me. He calls them fellow workers. Dependence on others. You see him there. They risked their lives for Paul. And Paul knew it very well. There in verse 18, we see that he went to Sencrae and that there he cut his hair because he was under a vow. In the book of Leviticus, you read about a Nazarene vow, a Nazarite vow, in which for one reason or another, you make a vow to the Lord. I'm, I'm going to do this before you, and I'm so serious about this that I won't cut my hair until it's accomplished. And you've got to stop and wonder, at what point did Paul make that vow? Did he make it after the vision of seeing Jesus? Did he say, yes, Jesus, I, I believe you. I will vow that I will stay in Corinth as long as you would have me and not cut his hair from there? Did, did, he, did he make that vow post the, the council? Did they make a vow going into the council, into the tribunal? I don't know where that was. But what we see is Paul vowing to the Lord and trusting, entrusting himself to God's protection. It's impossible for me to think about a Nazarite vow and not think about the 2004 Red Sox, right? Johnny Damon and that just flow that he had going and the beard that was huge. And if you read the articles about that team, you read about the camaraderie and, and the friendship and, and, and the joy that they had together. And, and it just made me think of Paul and Priscilla and Aquila leaving Corinth and going and shaving their heads. And I don't know if they gave it to Locks of Love or who they gave their hair to, but Paul shaves his head in honor of how faithful God has done and been in his life, his steadfast love of the Lord. And then the last thing that you see is in verse 21. He goes to Ephesus. He drops off Priscilla and Aquila. It might possibly be that they are going to try to find their way back up to Pontus because once they're at Ephesus, they don't have to go across water anymore. They just go north through this land and get back home to where Aquila is from. But he drops them off there. He goes to the synagogue. They say, would you stay with us? And Paul, who started a second missionary journey in a fight with Barnabas because he wasn't getting his way. You remember what Barnabas' name means? Son of encouragement. Do you remember that? Paul might have been hard to get along with. But there Paul says and responds to them, I will return if God wills. If God wills. And we see in divine appointment, in divine command, in divine intervention, and in divine dependence, what it means to have divine perspective, that Jesus is at work in our lives. And I want to close with this question. Do you have a stoic perspective on life, or do you have a divine perspective? A perspective that is fueled by reason, by what you see, or a perspective that is fueled by faith and prayer? Well, you go, I don't know. Let me read to you a quote from Seneca. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, Gallio's brother, the one who spoke and saved Paul, the one through whom Jesus saved Paul. Seneca writes this way. Tell me what you think about this. Tell me if you would retweet this. That's what I'm asking you. The greatest obstacle in living is expectancy. 
which hangs upon tomorrow and loses today. You are arranging what lies in fortune's control and abandoning what lies in yours. What are you looking at? To what goal are you straining? The whole future lies in uncertainty. Live immediately. Withdraw into yourself, he says. As far as you can, associate with those who will make a better man of you. Welcome those whom you can welcome those whom you yourself can improve. The process is mutual, for men learn while they teach. Would you retweet that? Let me ask you if you would retweet these words from Paul. The perspective of divine dependence to the Christians in Corinth. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, hmm, divine perspective, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Are you fueled by reason in the way that you perceive the world? Or are you fueled by faith and prayer? And I simply want to say, come to the table. Let's receive together the grace of the Lord. Pray with me.